Welcome back. We are here with episode two of the Certain Uncertainty podcast. Certain Uncertainty. In this one, we took everyone's feedback, which was fantastic. And one of the main things we're going to try and approach with this episode is firstly, talking a little bit slower, but then as we go through and get into the depth of some of these ideas, we go fairly deep in understanding where we can make changes into our lives and understanding from a a physiological standpoint, but also from a philosophical standpoint, how we can make changes into our own lives on the day to day. When I have my accelerometer on and I'm zooming, you got to let me know, Joe, because I'm going to be up in this, right? Like I'm just going to be full throttle mode and you know, sometimes you just forget that you're going at full throttle. Absolutely. We have some fun ideas to discuss today. And, you know, the purpose really is to see where these thoughts lead us to. And we might jump ship on some of the ideas, but rest assured, a new idea will come full front. I think the theme and something we're going to try going forward, see if this works, is drop one question in the beginning and have this as kind of a core background theme as we go through some of these different ideas and and topics. And I think the theme, or at least the question for today that you can hopefully take and think and ponder on for yourself is mental reversibility. What does that mean to you? So for me, it's more or less the idea that just as you can use your mind to achieve a greater state of well-being, you can do the exact opposite and use your mind to instill a sense of depression, instill a sense of anxiety, to quite literally reverse the direction of progress in your mind. And I think it's relevant because oftentimes you get stuck into the progress loop, and before you know it, you're actually performing some mental reversibility where you're actually declining in your productive capabilities because you're stuck in these thought trains that are uh, enabling more depression or more uh, negative feelings that are going to be inhibiting more productive ones. I wonder when we're approaching some of these different states of consciousness, which is a, a loose term that gets kind of thrown around in the way people are approaching, you know, depression, overall mental health, well-being. And this is such a broad topic that we've addressed and looked at so, so often in different ways. And I think this multifaceted puzzle that a lot of new technology is coming out and trying to address. One of the things that comes to mind for me is this reversibility factor of it. And I think what interests me the most in this context is the comparison between Eastern approaches and the traditional kind of Eastern versus Western approaches to medicine and mental health and the way that we look at how you address this overall well-being in your own personal life is, you know, in Western medicine and the way we approach these problems now is shifting away from the the medication aspect of it, of how can we medicate and address the different, you know, states of being and consciousness that can cause depression and anxiety and these different, you know, problems people experience in their lives versus the Eastern approach, which was much more centered around holistic medicine, meditation, and the way you approach your overall lifestyle as a whole and kind of going toward the core of a problem. And I think something that's come more into our lives and practices today with new companies and apps like Headspace and Headway and these different programs that help address mental health as a whole is can you use meditation in these constant practices to 
not only address, but more so observe these factors in your life that may be causing these different, you know, experiences and ways that you approach your own well-being and observing these feelings in your body and trying to identify like why someone could be feeling a certain way, you know, in their lives, in their day where there's a, a greater schema or a picture of why your brain is acting the way it is. Well, let me, let me stop you there, Joe. So, I mean, you, you bring into the idea of Eastern philosophy versus Western philosophy in each of which you would assume because of the dichotomy itself, there is some difference in how they achieve well-being. And so, I kind of just want to jump in on that and, and see if we can figure out maybe some loose way to categorize the different ways of achieving well-being and to see maybe if there are any mental reversibility mechanisms within these two different styles of thinking to achieve well-being. From my, from my perspective, I assume the Eastern and Western, the biggest dichotomy is based on the focal point. What I mean by that is a focal point that is abstract in awareness sense. So in Eastern philosophy, what I find to be a common theme is that instead of actually addressing one specific point, one specific topic, you actually are looking at the background radiation of all the different external stimuli and seeing how that influences. And hey, from that, you, you, you birth meditation and so forth, right? Where meditation is more or less the idea of being aware of not necessarily what's going on in the internal substrate that is your, your mind or whatever, but more or less the external substrate, the fluid flow of all the stimuli that surrounds you. Western philosophy, on the other hand, is much more so or much more so centered on a specific focal point. How does how does this one stimuli cause an influence? What is the causality relationship of this one stimuli on your present behavior, your present state of well-being, or the lack thereof? Now, I think it's really interesting because you see very different states of mind when you when you change the focal point. And I, I guess I just wanted to speak on that because it's a very interesting thing. It's, it's, it's more or less, look, when you're looking at a picture, here's an analogy. When you're looking at a picture, instead of looking at a specific person, you have to kind of de, I guess, zoom out and look at all the different elements in that picture, the color hues, the background, not the people in it, but all the different background radiation that makes that picture what it is besides the actual people that are embedded in it versus in a Western society, you would look at the person themselves and, and, and rate the photo based on each of the individuals, their, their, their appearances, you know, how they are presenting themselves rather than just the background itself. And I think taking this abstract lens at well-being, you can arrive at some very interesting ways of, of seeing and optimizing how to achieve well-being in different contexts. Right. That's a good point. So I wonder what specifically could we break down in the lens of the forward direction going from a state of being anxious, depressed, or trying to identify where these factors come into someone's life for, you know, causes that can lead to this snowballing effect where one thing can put someone in a slightly lower mental state. And then that new framework that they approach everything else in their life is at a slowly, slow, slowly lowered mental state where they address things that used to be slightly better are now worse. So when they're 
approaching this problem, trying to reorganize their thoughts and feelings and categorize or at least compartmentalize these buckets into why they may be feeling a certain way with a certain set of criteria or like you said, that that substrate in the sense that you have this capability in a sense that when an event comes into your frame of reference, how do you take that and catalyze it for your own experiences and how you address this in your general mental health and well-being? I think that's mm-hmm. what I'm most curious about. For me, it's it's the ideal model is somewhat of a hybrid, right? Where you're not placing too much I should say belief or faith in a specific stimuli's influence on yourself. Rather, it's a constant balance of saying, okay, there are multiple things that are changing how I'm feeling right now, right? Some of them have more power over me than others, right? And this is this is the contrast between Western and Eastern. The Western would focus on that one salient point, that one really impactful salient uh stimuli, for example, versus the Eastern philosophy here would say, okay, sure, that that really powerful one may be really impactful on you. But what happens if we take the sum of all the background stimuli? Now, does that background, all the sum of all those little stimuli, does that have that sum of influences? Does that have a greater influence than just that one? And, and it changes every single time. So maybe the answer isn't uh, straightforward, but, you know, there are always this, this, this trend of balance in how we perceive stimuli, right? Placing too much faith in any one stimuli might actually lead you the exact opposite direction. And you might try to remove or mitigate that stimuli's influence. And what happens is you realize that the background stimuli start overtaking you and actually start leading you into another other direction because you didn't focus on those background stimuli. You didn't, you didn't focus on removing all the different small minor constraints that are making you feel a specific way. And really you just wanted to focus on the one major one. Maybe, maybe one, one example might be, you know, focusing on removing your smoking habits, right? Removing your smoking habits and not really focusing on your diet, your exercise, your sleep hygiene. So those are all the kind of background things that you kind of put in the queue, but you focused on the smoking one, right? And that's, you know, the Eastern versus Western philosophy here. The Eastern philosophy would say, okay, yeah, you have a smoking problem, right? But instead of just trying to take out smoking from your life, why don't you just try to make your sleep a little better? Why don't you just do a little bit more exercise? Why don't you just focus on a little bit more your diet? And slowly you start mitigating, you know, those, those natural responses and their influence on a, a bad mental health or whatever it is. And as opposed to just taking the smoking and say, let's just try to cold turkey, get that thing out of here. You know, we don't want to eat anymore. Right. And, you know, but you still have sleep problems. You still have diet problems. Right. And, and then getting back, getting back into it, it's like, well, now I'm really tired and I could really want a cigarette now. And it becomes much more challenging when you really just try to cold turkey one stimuli. And it's a little bit of a balance. Right. It's it's, it's you know, you can't just only optimize the background because then you still have a smoking problem. Right. And so there is this this kind of contrast there that is a tricky line. It's a, it's a tight rope of what you actually want to change. I think that's an interesting point. I've never heard of sleep hygiene be used before, but I think that's a really good term to kind of label it as because it is unbelievably important how much sleep can impact your life and having a consistent sleep schedule will will set a foundation and give you a runway to address so many other problems or at least practices and habits in your life. And I think another interesting point that you started to build on was should you or could you 
identify one habit or practice that you're trying to break or at least change without addressing this other fundamental landscape in your in your environment and in your life. So you have all these categories of how you live and how you operate. And I think breaking it down into a proper diet, a good sleep habit, you know, healthy practices and a gr- gratitude mentality toward the things that people have in their life. And then, you know, there's those positive attributes, but there's also the negative ones where you say, you know, I, I kind of have a, a smoking problem or, you know, drinking, or I don't address my sleep as, as the way I like to. Can you isolate one of those and bring that level down without actively addressing the other levels and bringing them up? And I think that's a good kind of basis to approach this Eastern versus Western approach into medicine, where I think the Western approach is more focused on medicating the isolated compartment, as opposed to the Eastern approach, which is more holistic and addressing your fundamental way of living and how you can create kind of an equilibrium with how you approach your lifestyle as a whole. And I think one of the most interesting and curious aspects of that, that I kind of want to get into is is this a mental, rev- mentally reversible process or approach? And what I mean by that is, you know, when people talk about depression and how meditation is really popular and you should try and incorporate meditative practices into your life as a fundamental habit so that you can start observing your lifestyle. I wonder if you can get to a place where you're skilled enough in the practices of meditation, could you meditate yourself into a depressive feeling or state and not on, not on accident, but I'm, I'm talking about on purpose. Could you meditate yourself into a field of understanding what those feelings feel like, or is it non-reversible and there has to be an external, you know, substrate or an external enzyme that puts you into a field? So let me, let me stop you there. And, and is the reason that it's even desirable to achieve a state of depression so that you are familiar that when when life does get you into a bad position that you know how to jump out of it right so you put yourself into a bad position on intentionally on purpose so that you put yourself into a i guess less risk or mitigate the risk here as as to the impact of that depression because you put yourself in there and chances are if you put yourself in there you can take yourself right back out and so when life gives you a big bad hand, you know, you're, you're drawing two seven on the poker table, you know, you know how to get out of it now. You, you know, the next hand is going to be a pocket ace. Right. And I think that is more or less the purpose. The why here is being so skilled at changing what state of mind that you are in that no matter what life deals you, you can get out of it. And you can put yourself in a more mentally resilient state of mind at all times once you know how to go back and forth between a negative state versus a positive state. And at some level, you might say, well, you know, once it all blurs together, you are just a state of mind that is powerful, that has absolute control over what state of mind you want to be in. And I think that's really the goal here is can I control at such a high level how I feel? From an internal perspective, and there's always the environment that's going to influence you, you know, whether or not the weather is outside. If it's hot, you're going to be kind of sweltering hot and you're going to be sweating and it's going to maybe influence your mood in a specific way that's negative. But even still, with with all these environmental factors, you know, you have the awareness, you know, which ones are which. Can you still put yourself into a positive state of mind regardless? Right. You see what I'm saying? Definitely. And I think what that makes me think of 
is almost in a sense of know your enemy in the way like the art of war when you go through and be comfortable with discomfort and almost put yourself in a place where you can begin to understand how you will react and how you need to address yourself when you are starting to slip into a place of discomfort and invulnerability. And I think just as you need to be familiar with how your body reacts in a physically challenging or dangerous situation, it's a necessary practice that you need to understand how your body and mind will react and how you will address yourself as you start to slip into a mentally dangerous situation and addressing that almost in a way of knowing your enemy and being familiar with that battleground in both the positive, but also the negative landscape is really important, but I think really challenging because on the first, you know, approach to this, this field, you have to understand how you can one, find the light and put yourself into a controlled level of comfort and addressing where these flaws and problems come up and where you are being kind of attacked from the inside, but also the outside. But then if you can start to build this landscape in your mind and how you approach and address these different thoughts and feelings and stimuli from the inside and the outside, be comfortable with that danger zone. And that's really, really hard. And I wonder to what level of depth you need to start going through. So how many levels of breakthrough analysis or at least reflection do you need to give yourself before you hit the core and start understanding your own personal philosophies and understanding that this is where I'm comfortable. This is what makes me uncomfortable. Now, just like exercise or stress or challenges, can you mentally challenge yourself to put you in a place that's uncomfortable, that's dangerous. Because our goal with a lot of meditation and a lot of what's preached and written about is that, okay, you're in a place that you're not entirely comfortable with, that you don't really wanna be in. And all these new books like Sam Harris's book and these other teachings and app, apps that are coming out are obviously guided to make you happier, more comfortable, more aware of your life and your body as a whole. But in none of them really do I find, you also have to understand the other side of the coin. How do you go through an approach that training, the mental resilience that you have to give yourself without it actually being a real-time factor, without actually something happening to you in these moments to put you in a state where you need to start implementing these practices? Can you proactively prepare your brain and train yourself to be ready for when those dark places come? And yeah, I mean, and it's tough because once you put yourself into a place, what is required of you to get out of it may change. In other words, there's no formulaic tool like where I say, hey, I'm going to give you this thought. You think this thought you're you're done. Boom. You're out of that. It's like, well, it, it depends. It changes every single time. And so depending on what type of mood state you're in and how you got yourself in, there's going to be different thoughts that you're going to have to get yourself out of it. And this is a big challenge because I mean, there's lots of different tools out there to experiment with and test out and figure out if they will make the change that you need to put yourself into a positive state of mind. And I think, I think this, this kind of, this kind of jumps into different levels of insight in, in how we actually start to make changes and get outcomes that we want. And I'm going to jump on this, this insight topic here. And I've been thinking about this insight hierarchy. So I guess the general question is, are there gradations of insight into achieving the outcomes that we want? And 
I'll, I'll just jump in on this. And I, I, I propose basically there's, there's four levels of insight with, with a level zero insight being just a basic self-awareness of who you are, right? Once you've achieved that, once you just, you know, and this is, this is some pretty primitive evolutionary thing that humans have been able to accomplish before most species and that we have become aware of ourselves at an exceptional rate. You know, babies become aware of themselves much quicker than most animals, right? So level zero is pretty much taken into account. We have already, our evolution has already taken care of that insight for us where we're aware of who we are and, you know, that, that we are a person that is reacting to the environment. That's inside level zero. Inside level one is a little bit more interesting. It's, it's saying, okay, I'm aware of who I am, but I don't necessarily have the tools to change myself into what I want to be, right? And so now it's an awareness of, well, what tools are in the environment? And it can be abstract or it can be physical. It can be like a hammer or it can be exercise, right? Exercise can be a tool for changing behavior. And that's, you know, that's insight level one, just, just a basic awareness. Hey, there's tools out there that can help me reach my outcome. Um, and so then, then we get into insight level two and insight level two gets a little bit more tricky. It's like, okay, I recognize that exercise is going to be a valuable way to change my behavior. And so the real question then is, okay, what happens if exercise isn't really giving me the outcome I want? Well, you can change it, you know, instead of doing hypertrophy, you know, weight training, instead go do some calisthenic training and see if it has a different effect on your body. That's molding the tool to achieve an outcome that better fits what you want. And this is insight level two. And, and then, then we, then we reach the top of our hierarchy of insight. Now insight level three is a little bit more tricky because it doesn't really manifest in one generation of a species, right? When we, when we're looking at insight level three, it's okay. I've, I've identified a tool. I've molded a tool to change an outcome. Now insight level three is I'm going to use these tools to change my own biology so that I don't necessarily have to seek those tools externally. I actually have built them internally into my own genetic biology. I built in these, these, these tools. And, and, and this is the thing you change the biology at insight level three. And then you gain a new awareness of new tools in your environment, right? And the whole cycle starts over back at insight level one up to insight level three. And you can keep going on this, this chain until you evolve a species to some crazy extent. And I think when it comes to really becoming in charge and powerful of your sense of self, it is in realizing these levels of insight that you can have for yourself. And when we're talking about how to achieve a greater well-being, Perhaps the mental reversibility is more or less an insight level three problem where we're changing our biology and being comfortable at the most terrible states of mind and using that as a tool to further change our own well-being of our, of our biology in the future. And, and, and to me, it, it, it does, it kind of sits between the insight level two because, you know, we're trying to change the meditation right here, meditation being the insight level one, meditation is a tool that we can use. Insight level two, let's use meditation a little bit differently to achieve a lower state of mind, a depressive state of mind. That's molding the tool. And then insight level three is, okay, now that we've molded the meditation, let's literally make a change in our own mind that will carry on through generations to come, right? And, and this, is, this is the insight hierarchy that I'm, that I'm more or less speaking of, right? There's that inside level zero basic self-awareness. Luckily your, your ancestors millions of years, years ago figured that out for you. So you don't have to worry about, you know, being aware of yourself, luckily, <laughs> which is a big step in, in our evolutionary timeline scale. So, I mean, in the context of evolving the mind, 
how do you think mental reversibility sits in there? That is such an interesting conceptualization of, of a, a problem and a structure. I think part of me just wants to, to free flow from that idea and at least clarify what, what you just said. So insight level zero is just a basic level of self-awareness. Insight level one is recognizing or observing that there are tools available in your environment to try and see how you can make changes that affect level zero in your internal level of self-awareness. Level two is optimizing these tools or at least trying to find new ways to use those tools to which you've just discovered. Like the difference between a screwdriver and a drill is how I think about it. Right. And then level three is taking these these new tools that you're trying to optimize and integrate them into your fundamental or baseline cognitive capability and how you can take new tools that you've learned to optimize, bring them into your life to such a level that they almost become a subconscious habit in the way that you approach new problems and tools. It's not even thinking through your toolkit. You almost have them as a regular accessible option that you don't really have to think about as you go through and address new problems and and situations and stimuli as they come to you. And I think that's so interesting because a lot of what we try and do with these new practices is it takes an unbelievable amount of consistency and dedication to some of these practices like meditation or like exercise or lifestyle changes and how you stay consistent implementing them in your life. And then I think the, the, other side of that coin is the medication aspect of it, which does not require really consistency because it's almost enacting the processes for you without having to make a conscious decision. And I think that is in terms kind of a blanket statement as you go through and see medication as not a challenge more so as it is a process kind of, or a product versus a process where the medication is a product. And a lot of these, these types of lifestyle changes that require incredible attention to detail and dedication is a process. And I think understanding the steps that are very gradual in that process, as you go through in your search for new tools, almost builds off some topics that we talked on last episode, where there's a set of questions or conversations that you need to understand. And it's almost like building a new, a new dictionary. Like you need a new language and a new dictionary and how you address yourself and your capability to search for these new tools that exist in the world, your own GPS or compass and how you guide this process of going through and finding the different levels of gradations that exist in this journey of going through and starting from a baseline or starting from some some altitude in your goal or quest for finding new new technology or new processes that you can incorporate into your life to make them sustainable and effective tools. And I think a specific example of that could be, we've, we've touched on meditation a lot, but meditation and also the types of meditation where some of them are, are guided and you go through and you're prompted with questions and are forced to almost think to yourself and have conversations in your mind of, what are you feeling today? And let's really spotlight this and draw attention to it. And how are you perceiving your thoughts? Is it a blanket that's kind of falling over you? Is it an umbrella that's protecting you from external stimuli and these things that are coming in and impacting you in the world? Are you using your own thoughts and your own mental environment as a shield to protect you from things that are coming from you at all directions? Or are you using them 
as a weapon, as a tool that when those things come at you, you know how to defend, but you also know how to attack. And I don't mean attack in a a negative or, or aggressive kind of way, but I mean more of an empowered lens. Yeah. And I guess one thing I want to clarify though, as far as the insight levels go, just because you're using a tool that has been molded doesn't mean you've achieved the insight level two. To actually achieve the insight level two, you have to be the one to make the change in the tool yourself. And so like when you, when you're about to turn medication, it's like, okay, well, right. All of these medicines have been more or less changed from our nat, from our nature to give us drugs, which we call alkaloids or plant, plant-based drugs that have, have benefits. Right. And the thing is the insight didn't come from the people taking the drug. That's still insight level one. Taking the drug is still an insight level one. The insight level two is once you get the drug is you're going to be one making the tweaks to it, right? That fit your own individualistic needs. Because when these drugs are manufactured, they're manufactured on a much larger scale. They're manufactured for populations of individuals based on statistical results of, of success. They're not based on your success. They're based on some, some theoretical average, some person that doesn't actually exist. There is no such thing as an average person. Everyone has from the average baseline, a bit of variation from there. And so when it comes to actually using these, these insight levels for your own, you have to actually be the one changing the tools. You have to be the one figuring out what your individual needs and, and this is how you become empowered. This is how you empower your mind. This is how you attack change is, is you have to tap into these insight levels on your own. You have to figure out the different ways of molding change for yourself. And that's the biggest challenge, right? Is, is in realizing, okay, you know, these people have spent so much testing on these medications, right? And they've spent so much money and research and getting these things just right for a huge, large scale population. It's like, okay, now when I get it, how can I make it any better? Right. And this is where you arrive at a new form of insight is when you ask the question, how can I make it better? I think that's so awesome. And I think it's really cool that the capabilities of, of, of modern medicine to address and understand very, very niche chemical pathways in the body and the brain and your, your internal micro environments for your, your cell and molecular biology is unbelievably complicated. And I think our, our capabilities now in modern medicine and technology to understand pathways and understand how different hormones and proteins and antibodies can go through and make just the smallest factors and changes in your own immune system are undeniably incredible. And I think the technical question that comes up with how we address either this isolated pathway where you're looking at kind of like a roadmap, an enormous map of say a city where say like London or Paris, for example, that has this incredible organization of streets and avenues and cars and one-way streets. And then also there's tunnels and subways beneath that. And there's all of these layers. And if you're trying to say, okay, I'm starting at the Southwest corner of the city and I'm trying to get to the Northeast corner of the city, you will take a series of buses, taxis, subways, underground tunnels, walkways, and one-way streets. And in this complicated metaphor to medicine, there are so many different pathways that are arriving at your end result that in no way are we, are we knocking the incredible advancements of modern medicine. But I think where the question of 
strict regulation and technicality comes into our curiosity is the way we look at the confounding factors that go through this development. And if you isolate a specific pathway like that, say, say a stoplight that you're approaching 30, 35% of the way through your journey changes from red to green. Okay. So you're coming up and you're, you're on your journey, you're on this pathway and you're at a stoplight that changes. But when that stoplight changes, it's attached to a different streets pathway. So say that light changes. And then on the next street over that light, because of the change at the light you're at goes from red to yellow or a new pathway opens up, say like there was construction at, you know, street a, but if that's construction is lifted, it actually impacts streets D and E. And in this very complicated pathway of trying to understand how you address medication and tools, and also this holistic implementation into your life, I would love to see, or at least try and even understand how these two fields of science merge, where I think one is very, very deeply understood, while one is not understood for its core fundamentals of it being such a broad application to medicine as a whole and how you approach this insanely complex problem of your mind, your body. And like, how does, you know, taking insulin, which controls blood sugar and your, your hormones and your energy also impact, say, muscle growth or memory, just like something like nicotine, which is an incredibly interesting pharmacological drug that impacts energy and stimulants, but also impacts your heart rate. But it also works on your memory and it's also addictive. So there's so many angles and different sides of this object and trying to identify the object as a whole and see this is, I wonder, do we have that capability right now? Or do we just have to kind of accept the 80, 20 rule that we, we understand maybe 80% of this and the, the, the other 20, hopefully we can try and address and look at the worst case corners and know that we're, we're not fully encapsulating all of the things that are happening, but hopefully we know enough that we can see a result, quantifiable result, statistically proven. And, you know, we can try and make this a broad treatment for, for a group of people, even though every single person's reaction is different. Right. And I think it's very interesting because I think the way medicine sees a element right now is they, instead of having all these little roadways that have all this causality and change subsequently is what medicine tries to do is build highways right? Start from point A, you have a problem and point B is the outcome, right? And you're missing, you're basically kind of skirting over a lot of those key other pathways that'll get you to an outcome that is more preferable to yourself because the highway only ends at one, one point, right? For all individuals, right? So maybe, maybe for your biology, you missed a few side roads on the way over the highway that were key, 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 uh, key side roads that allowed you to make those tiny subtle changes that were most valuable to you. Right. And that's that, that 80, 20%, you're getting 80% of the value by getting from point A to point B, but by not going down those little side roads along the way, you're losing some of the, you know, 20% of the value there that is, that is optimal. And, And sometimes, you know, these are, these are broad statistics. So 80%, is a general statement. So for an individual, it could be like 60, 40, right? But for the population, it's 80, 20. 
So these are again averages. And what I almost wonder is that maybe maybe an isolated approach to medicine isn't that that good. Maybe having one tool, maybe instead of and this would make it a lot more complicated for patients who don't really know and understand their, themselves, but maybe instead of prescribing one drug, you would prescribe five drugs, right? And each one is optional. And they and they have very very minor effects. Instead of one intense effect, they have minor effects. And so it's like going over the highway, which is one big magnitude effect, or going down the side roads in the exact route that you want. And those are those five minor lesser effect drugs, right? And then you get exactly where you want to be at that point B or whatever, but you took a little bit different route that was more fitting of yourself. And so it's, it's almost, I would say like this holistic approach, right? The holistic medicine approach isn't necessarily having one super powerful drug. It's, it's having a little bit of green tea, adding a little bit of spices to it that are, that are of your cup of tea, right? Literally. And slowly changing the balance of this 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 medicinal compound that fits your own needs and this is obviously something that you need to test and the reason why it's important that there are minor effects is so that you can continue testing it if it's too powerful you might have some severe damage that you're doing right and and if you're working in the insight level three domain it's not an insight level three it's actually going to make you worse right it's going to inhibit your your evolution and i feel like this is something that's happening a lot is people will go for the the top power drug right and they'll take the highway and it's like dude you went the wrong direction right your highway took you over there what if you took the side roads what you would have seen is a, is a sharp u-turn right and you went the opposite way because you took this one super powerful drug that got you from point a to point b sure but you weren't trying to go to point b you're trying to go to point c so i think Firstly, I want to at least clarify that the the theme or the topic of medicine that we're talking about as well is in the realm of of mental health and understanding your your own psyche and capabilities because there are handfuls of of medications and therapeutics out there that work incredibly well like in cancer, immunology, ulcerative colitis, these these other disease areas and therapeutic areas that have actually combinations of drugs like that, that I've been, I've been researching and looking into the clinical trials that are using four, five, six different therapeutics at the same time. And then adding on the sixth one is finally making a difference. And that is unbelievable to me where, where we can go in and using new, new types of diagnostics and artificial intelligence to say, okay, you've taken four different therapeutics or, or chemicals that have had minimal response or not full response. And then you take the sixth and now it's working. So in our realm of, of addressing mental health and understanding your capability to perceive what is happening in your brain, I think are some of the most challenging problems to address. And as we go through and look at the positive results and the length of the positive results from people who have things like clinical depression and clinical anxiety that is long lasting or even treatment resistant depression is so fascinating in its, its grip on the psyche and how long those feelings and those environments can persist and how adding high volumes of neurochemicals or drugs can perturb that system so that you come in and hopefully shake it enough or at least move that baseline enough that maybe it does move someone's frame of reference and put them in a mind space or an environment where they can address problems forthrightly and head on. Whereas in that frame of reference that they've almost been stuck in or locked in is, is like punching the ceiling. Like it's difficult for them to get out and they need 
almost like a chemical enzyme to move that baseline and put them into a new sphere of reference or, or reference point where they can address these problems. And I think it's also really interesting as we look at how each individual reacts differently to different medications. It's a dream of mine. I think if we could have some sort of understanding where we could look at the bridge between psychology and physiology or at least neurobiology and the psychology of what happens as those those compounds come together and those fields of science come together where let's say you have a patient who has you know level three out of ten anxiety but seven out of ten depression and this baseline is is for herself so we can say okay we've we've mapped and monitored your general spectrum of feelings and emotions and for you say this is a male a female who's 17 years old and weighs 112 pounds and has you know this type of bone structure and this type of body fat and this very specific physiological profile what if we could say let's give you 35 milligrams of this 18 micrograms of this 17 grams of this and we have this specified cocktail to give someone based off their unique physiological profile. And I think that's so far away, but I would love to see how this could develop because when, when companies and practices go through this method of developing a treatment, you have to look at the dosaging scale, how that changes the physiological readout of what's the residual levels in your blood. What's the lasting effect of the, the chemical. What is the relapse rate? How fast do you improve? How fast do you maintain? And all of these different profiles that we have to build our assumptions on are very multifaceted, but we can't right now give unspecified or at least overly specified amounts of a drug to someone because we won't know the depth of co- inhibitory or cooperative impact that these mixes of drugs could have. Like there is no clinical trial that can do a full combinatory problem and say, if we give you 37 different combinations of this chemical, will that give you the optimum response? All right. I would love to see that. Yeah. I mean, I think the problem is, is that we don't have enough information on key checkpoints. So when we have, let's say, uh, drug A, B, C, and D, right? But you only take A when you get to some point in your in your process, and 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 that could be pain, right? It's like, well, what kind of pain are you feeling? Because at 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 a different type of pain level, then we'll give you C. But if you have this type of pain, then you will give you B, right? What are the check marks to to basically establish when you give this combination of drugs, right? Right? When when is it is it a thought process it's like okay well i have pain it's dull versus pain versus it being sharp or something like that right just for for a simple analogy and it's like each one of these things and this is where you have to be very cognizant and be aware of how you are feeling and reacting to these things but because every single person has different in between checkpoints where okay i took drug a and it made me feel this way right maybe it's like you start by giving everyone the exact same drug a and then you basically build out the variation of response right 
from there, you have this massive variation of response. And A only had a minor effect, right? But the whole goal of A is to basically point out and, and try to bring out the variation in how people are reacting to this thing so that you know how to handle the edge case once they've taken drug A. So it's like, okay, if you reacted to drug A, and, and the whole point of drug A, again, is really just to build out reaction and variation. Try to try to have a drug that makes them react so uniquely. And I think, you know, the, the simplest drug that really does this, that has the most intense effect that, that really brought, brings out the variation in individuals is most psychedelics. I mean, for the most part, psychedelics are going to show you vast differences in our biology because you're just spamming your brain with a bunch of different reaction and all that reaction is going under all these different neural circuitries that are unique to you. And when you spam all these interactions in your neural circuitry, right, the amalgam of that interaction is going to have a very individualistic response that you can then look at and say, oh, this person is in group A actually instead of B, right? And we can actually create a category system by looking, you know, and this is where, uh, Stanislav Grav basically created this, this quote was like, you know, what the, what the microscope is to biology and what the telescope is to astronomy, astronomy, psychedelics are to the mind. They are a way for us to find and create metrics for the mind so that we know when someone has this set of, of being, you know, what to do with it. Because when, when, when someone just says, hey, I'm in pain. What the hell does that mean? What kind of pain? You know, it, you can you can you can get a little more specific. Where does it hurt? And you're like, well, it just kind of hurts all over, right? Like, you know, in, in the case of mental health, it's like, you know, there is pain does not have a locus. Pain is just some abstract entity that is occurring in all avenues of your waking life. And so I, I think this is where you really jump into the the influences of Instead of having a drug that aims to specifically treat, what you need is a drug that shows what needs to be treated. So I guess right now, our tools that we use to try and diagnose or observe the spectrum or scale of, of mental health struggle and pain, we're kind of essentially at level zero. We're only at the self-aware stage of looking at how do we look at where it hurts, at what level is that, is that un, un, universal to the population as a whole? To what specific quantitative metric can we look at your level of depression versus their level of depression versus you know everyone's level of depression in this this distribution curve? Do we know what that looks like? What is the spectrum? How high does it go? How low does it go? Where is the average? Can you average people? And I think right now, what the big movement is behind a lot of these new, very new research groups and technologies coming out of new companies like Atai or the Psychedelic Research Institute coming up at UCSF right now, as well as at Harvard and uh, UMass in uh, Massachusetts, the hospital there. It's, it's fascinating to look at the avenues we're, we're approaching these problems with and how we are in the process right now. We're watching it unfold, which is incredible. The new tools that are being built in order to identify quantitatively how much people are suffering from these different areas. And I think right now we're still in this blend where 
the research and clinical trials that have come out so far for things like MDMA and for psilocybin is it is known that in order to achieve a sustainable and recreatable impact from these new technologies and medications, they have to also go hand in hand with a therapist, with the environment. The substance, the dosage, and the environment are all right now very close in their weighting of impact. And understanding this presence of how we can use a tool like this, which is unbelievably powerful, that has an incredibly long history through cultures, which is a whole other conversation we could get into, is how do we understand your dosage for your level of pain and how we guide the process from, from a therapist's or a caregiver's standpoint is is the problem we're, we're addressing right now, which is fantastic to witness. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be a drug. If you're, if you're drug hesitant because you're not confident in how you're going to handle these things, it doesn't have to be. It can be any tool that really shows individual variance. That's really what it is. What makes you different than other people? And how do you demonstrate that? Because when you demonstrate that, it tells other people that want to help you exactly how they can help you. And that's the biggest thing. And I, and I, think, I think we can edit there and, and let people... Just think for themselves, really, what, what distinguishes them at this level, at this biochemical level? We are all the same species here. We're all humans. We're all human animals. And so distinguishing ourselves inside the species, species class has a lot of subtlety, right? There's a lot of subtlety in how these variances present themselves. And I think if you really want to use this insight hierarchy map, it's being able to figure out those areas that need improvements. Um, and, and, and so, I mean... Really just find ways in which you can distinguish yourself. That's, that's the key. Uh, psychedelics is one tool. There's lots of them out there. I think a, a challenge that I'd like to leave on everyone's mind and a question to go forward as we, as we wrap up is how can you empower yourself to understand the tools that you have already in your capability and then write down in incredible granularity what tools you want to have? Envision them. Use, use the greatest aspect of your imagination to write down the ideal future that you could have in five years and then create the map, tracing right back to now and see, is there a tool that I can use to bring, bring myself to that point? I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you all for listening. This has been Joe and John coming to you live, kind of live. <laughs>